Hey guys, uh, welcome back to the Gene Panel Podcast, and thanks for tuning in to our second episode. We're going to talk about gene editing. Exciting. Now, we're going to start off with uh, story time with Ali, guys. So take it away. Okay, I hope you guys are all tucked in, because I'm about to tell you a nice little story. <laughs> so, growing up, the story of Icarus had always fascinated me. And for those of you who aren't familiar, allow me to explain. So the story of Icarus is one from Greek mythology, and it describes the tale of a father and his son Icarus who were imprisoned in a tall tower, and to escape, the father created wings for the two of them using feathers and wax. He warned Icarus, don't fly too close to the sun or else the wax will melt, and don't fly too close to the ocean or else the feathers will become drenched and will also fail to keep you up. Now Icarus, being overly ambitious and arrogant, felt compelled to do otherwise. He flew too close to the sun and the wax keeping his wings together melted, and subsequently fell into the ocean. And died. And I don't know if he died, but... Well, probably. <clears throat> probably. Okay, yeah, you're dark, man. Sorry. So, Icarus's story, therefore, represents the consequences of an individual's desire to go beyond what they are capable of. So, you may be wondering, how does this relate to genetics? Um, it sort of does. Trust me. Yeah. So, the story of Icarus essentially relates to a modern-day example. The story of how a scientist shocked the world by creating what many term designer babies. In November 2018, He Jiankui announced that he genetically modified two embryos, and which later resulted in twins uh, that were resistant to HIV. The two babies, whom he refers to as Lulu and Nana, were born mid-October in that same year, which means that the general public was unaware of what he was doing. Right, and so when he was doing this, you know, he's probably thinking... He's a genius. And to be honest, this is very new technology, it, and it is very impressive. Yeah. But to his surprise, he was met with widespread condemnation by many scientists around the world, and his experiments were even labeled as monstrous and unethical. Uh, many prestigious scientific journals also condemned this, uh, including uh, one by the name of Nature that you may or may not know. Um, so Nature actually called for a global moratorium, which is essentially a temporary ban on all clinical uses of human germline editing. That is changing heritable DNA, right, like DNA that we pass on to our children, uh, that is found in, for example, sperm, eggs, and embryos, uh, to make genetically altered babies. And this is just in a clinical setting, but laboratories can still use it to study the system. Right. Uh, now, many prominent scientists, uh, particularly those who were at the forefront of gene editing research, shared this sentiment. Um, now, while this whole ordeal unraveled in the year of 2018, his work and his whereabouts remained largely unknown until actually quite recently since the recording of this episode. Uh, so in December of 2019, uh, he was actually arrested and sentenced to three years in prison by the Chinese government for his gene editing work. Now, before we talk about the motivation behind this temporary ban and why many scientists around the world largely disapprove of genetically modified children, we need to talk about, well, what is gene editing? Um, and why is it that so many people are condemning it? Uh, well, at least in germline editing. And what are the consequences of doing this? Now, since we like defining things so much, I thought I would give a brief definition of what gene editing means. So for the purposes of this episode, it's just going to refer to an intended and targeted change in the DNA sequence of an organism. Now, another definition that would be quite helpful to define in a genetics podcast is a genome. Something which we should have defined before. But Probably. Here it is now. So yeah. there you go. So it's just all of the genetic material that is found in a cell. Now, in terms of gene editing, it's actually been around a lot longer than what most people may think. Since the late 1900s. Yeah. But obviously, because the technology and science behind gene editing has developed immensely since then, people have become more aware of it because it's more applicable. 
right? So for instance, early uses involved what's known as homology-directed repair. Now, in the laboratory, what you're going to do is you're just going to induce DNA damage. So for instance, through x-rays or whatever. And this damage particularly is going to be a double-stranded break. Because remember, DNA is a double helix, so you have two strands. So you're going to break both strands at a single position. And so you're essentially going to have two pieces of DNA now. And then you're going to inject your DNA construct, so give it to the cell. And this DNA construct is going to be flanked, so it's going to be the gene that you want to insert into the organism in the middle, and then it's going to be flanked by two homologous regions. That means that it's the same, essentially the same region as where you induce the damage. And this is just necessary for uh, the, the template to be inserted into the genome. How it works is rather complicated, so we're just going to leave it at that. Yeah, all I need to know is that the gene of interest is integrated into the damaged site. Exactly. And then how it's integrated is that you just let the cell do its thing. Because there's damage, it's going to want to repair it because it's unhappy. And then by repairing, it's ultimately going to use your template and insert it into the genome. So sometimes you don't even need to induce this damage. So for instance, in yeast, it's possible for it to, it's possible for it to introduce this template without needing this damage again. And then how does this relate to gene therapy? Well, people have always been motivated by gene therapy. So the potential to provide a cure for a genetic disease by replacing the gene with its non-disease version is something that people have always been looking to do. Right? So for instance, sickle cell anemia, if we can cure that by fixing the mutation through uh, genetic edit gene editing, as opposed to having a stem cell transplant, which not only takes long, but it has potentially lethal side effects. It's rather invasive. However, anytime there was a potential to implement gene therapy, so for instance through homology-directed repair, there was always a roadblock. So to give you context, people were using this method, homologous recombination, uh, in terms of repair, mainly in yeast. But this was efficient in yeast because yeast preferred to damage, uh, repair damage through homology-directed repair. But then when they took this method into another organism, such as the mouse, there was decreased efficiency. So for instance, if you were if you tried to do this in the mouse again, you take mouse embryos for instance, you would find that only one out of 100,000 or even one million of those embryos would have the change that you wanted. And this is important, right? Because you know, mice are mammals, and last time I checked, so are we. So. And potentially, we're more complicated than mice. So who's to say that it's not one out of one billion for us, right? So right. why was it such a low chance? Well, you would have things like incorporation into the wrong region. You would have maybe degradation of that DNA you introduced. So there was nothing for it to be, there was nothing to be incorporated. But most importantly, homology-directed repair is not the preferred mechanism of repair in the mouse as it is in yeast. Also, it's just generally a very difficult technique to use. In the lab, yeah. Right, so all these tangents led to the discovery of another form of double-stranded break repair, which is known as non-homologous end joining, which is essentially just sticking the two broken DNA ends together as opposed to recombining your template in. So you're just like kind of gluing them back together. Um, now, while gene editing as a form of gene therapy wasn't quite working out as intended, especially in the clinical setting, it's got a lot of risks associated with it, as we'll touch on later, actually. It nonetheless, nonetheless led to essential developments in molecular biology, and it really just goes to show that science is not linear. Uh, and if it weren't for these roadblocks, uh, our understanding of molecular biology would be limited relative to what we know now, right? We learn from our mistakes. Uh, ultimately, there were a lot of altercations associated with the earlier methods of gene editing, 
that prohibited its use, such as, as Ali touched on before, efficiency of incorporation, correct insertion, and there's also a variety of repair methods. So after all, I mean, how can we use something that we don't understand completely? Exactly. It's, it's just a shot in the dark, and to hedge our bets on such a technique would be very foolish of us to do. However, nowadays, gene editing has been made way, 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 way more simple. Way more simple. Thanks to CRISPR-Cas9. Now, a biology professor at MIT, uh, Rudolf Janisch, actually puts it quite nicely. Guys, guys, uh, before he says the quote, uh, he was actually, Julian was really afraid that he was going to butcher this name, but uh, I think he did it really well. <laughs> so I think you should all clap for him at home because he oh. was really stressing about this. But thanks. No yeah. problem, buddy. Anyways, <laughs> the quote was, when you made knockout mice before, uh, also, just as an aside, knockout mice is essentially just where you go in, make you know, you, gene, you edit the genome of a mice so that it has a deletion and a gene of interest so yeah. that you can see what happens when it's gone. Mm-hmm. Anyways, so yeah, he said, when you made knockout mice before, you needed some skills. Now, you don't need them anymore. Any idiot can do it. Which means I can do it now, too. <laughs> yeah, so idiots around the world rejoice. You can now edit genes. Just kidding. Easily. No one's an idiot. Okay, I, yeah, yeah. I, no. What, what Ali said. So anyways, what is it? What is this CRISPR that has revolutionized the world? Now, what people may not know is that CRISPR was derived from bacterial immune systems, which, you know, bacterial immune systems provide adaptive immunity by targeting foreign DNA, you know, that is DNA that isn't intrinsically inside bacteria. Um, It was actually discovered because people wanted to understand how bacteria defend themselves against viruses. Uh, Now, viruses that attack bacteria are called bacteriophages and they're constantly at war with each other, right? Bacteria and bacteriophages. And so what bacteriophages do is that they inject their own DNA into bacteria, um, turning the bacteria into a virus factory. That is, that the virus directs or essentially takes control of the bacterial gene expression to make more viruses. So the genes that are encoded in that injected DNA code for viral proteins and the virus takes advantage of the intrinsic mechanisms that are already in bacteria to replicate and produce viral proteins. And this can actually lead to the cell lysing or exploding because it becomes bloated with these viral proteins. Bye-bye, bacteria. (laughs) Yes, bye-bye. So this war is actually known as the coevolutionary arms race um, because the two uh, are constantly finding ways to overcome each other. So how does the bacteria prevent prevent itself from exploding because I don't think any bacteria just likes to explode. Nope. Um, so what it's actually going to use is, you guessed it, CRISPR. Now how does this work? Well, after the phage injects its DNA into the bacteria, the bacteria it's going to cleave up the viral DNA and then it's going to insert some fragment into what's known as the CRISPR locus, into its own genome. Now what does CRISPR stand for? Well, it stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Palindromic Repeats. So that's a mouthful, so I'm gonna keep saying CRISPR. Now, what a CRISPR locus is, it's a repertoire or a library of many viral DNA sequences from viruses that have previously infected the bacteria. And because it's a part of the genome, it means that it's passed down throughout generations. So it's heritable between other bacteria, from other bacteria, between bacteria. Yeah, I can't speak. Um, And so what this CRISPR locus is used for is that you're going to transcribe it. So by transcribing it, you're going to form a CRISPR RNA from the CRISPR locus. And you're also going to transcribe what's known as a Cas gene, which is a CRISPR-associated gene. Uh, And this is going to form the Cas9 protein. Cas9 protein is ultimately a nuclease, but you can think of it as molecular scissors that go snip-snip. 
And then the CRISPR RNA with the Cas9 protein are going to form a complex. So they're going to combine like Power Rangers do to form that mega super <laughs> robot thing. Yeah. And then the CRISPR RNA is essentially the Cas9 protein's eyes. It's going to bind to viral DNA. So for instance, if the viral DNA, which it got that CRISPR RNA from, injects uh, is, is in the cell again, it can bind to it because they're complementary. And then the Cas9 protein is going to go snip snip and say goodbye to that viral DNA. And essentially, this adaptive immunity of a bacteria gives rise to, again, like we said, a sort of memory, just like how we have memory. Um, or it could be likened to antibodies, which recognize certain bacteria or viruses within our body, and then they destroy it. So ultimately, the bacteria stays safe from viral attacks. Uh, right. So Jennifer Doudna. Doudna. <laughs> Doudna. You, you almost had it. <laughs> it's hard. And, and Emmanuel Charpentier um, repurposed this biological phenomena to enable scientists to edit genes so they can insert or delete genes with higher accuracy than with the previous methods we described earlier. Yeah. So now we've kind of defined what CRISPR-Cas9 even is. So what? Mm-hmm. Like, what so, can we use this for? So what? Right. So last episode, we talked about how we can use yeast as a cloning vector to mass produce human insulin. And we also talked, talked about impossible foods. So we can actually, CRISPR can be used to accomplish these things. Now, although the preciseness of CRISPR isn't required, it always helps. For instance, we can accurately insert such genes in front of promoters and also in your enhancers um, to kind of increase the expression of these genes. Exactly. And then another interesting use that I actually stumbled upon relates to malaria, which is a disease that people have been wanting to eradicate for a while now. Now, one plan, as Jennifer Kahn explained in a TED Talk, was proposed by a scientist by the name of Anthony James. Oh, guys, 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 by the way, um, Ali was like really stressing over pronouncing, you know, Anthony James's name. He was, the Anthony part or the James he, part? Both. You're, you're struggling. You're struggling. Anthony James. Okay. Now, he wanted to eradicate <laughs> malaria. So, okay, Julian, you want to stop laughing now? Sorry. He always laughs at me. Okay. So he essentially wanted to eradicate malaria by breeding a bunch of genetically modified mosquitoes that are resistant to the plasmodium parasite. The plasmodium parasite is just what causes malaria. And then he wanted to take these genetically resistant uh, mosquitoes, release them into the wild, and have them mate with the native mosquitoes so that the resistance gene gets propagated throughout the population. Now, this is a good idea, right? Well, you're wrong. (laughs) <laughs> Until you, because re- you realize that they have to release ten times the number of native mosquitoes for this plan to even work. And it's safe to say that no one who lives in a region populated by mosquitoes wants to have even more mosquitoes. Yeah, because like, dude, who I live in Iran. Like when I go back there, there's so many mosquitoes. Or even when you go camping, it's just you just wake up and it's all red. Okay, off topic. But yeah, so essentially he needed to find a way to ensure that even a small number of mosquitoes can ensure the spread of the resistance gene. And this is actually where Gene Drive comes into play. Gene Drive was developed by Kevin Esfelt at Harvard, and he actually found a way to ensure the inheritance of a given trait and ultimately bypass Mendelian genetics, right? If Mendel knew about this, he'd be fuming. Absolutely mad. So he ref- we essentially refer to these types of genes as selfish genes because these are genes that propagate themselves to the population. They're selfish in that they just remain here. So how does this work? It makes use of CRISPR-Cas9. So the organism, right, so some organism carries genes for the CRISPR system as well as the gene of interest. In this case, it would be plasmodium resistance. 
So therefore, if you start off with some mosquito that has this gene drive on some chromosome, I should also I should also mention that mosquito like us are diploids, meaning that they have two copies of the of of of, of the genome, so one from the mother, one from the father. And so essentially when this mosquito is released into the wild, it's going to mate with a wild type or a native mosquito. Now, what does this mean? It means that their progeny are going to carry one copy from the genetically modified organism, from the genetically modified mosquito, and the other copy is just going to be normal. It's not going to have this gene drive system. Um, and then this, again, I should also mention that this gene drive system consists of the malaria gene as well as the CRISPR-Cas9 system, so that when you have one copy that has this gene drive system and one that doesn't, the gene drive system, because it has CRISPR-Cas9, it's essentially going to copy and paste itself onto the other copy. So now the progeny, although Mendelian, in, in a Mendelian sense, it would be heterozygous for this gene drive system, it's now homozygous, which means that it carries two copies, thanks to CRISPR-Cas9. And then if this progeny goes on to mate with other mosquito, then it's ultimately going to end up with a population that are all resistant to malaria. Right, so you can imagine how careful you must be when studying gene drive in the lab. If one of these genetically modified flies gets out into the wild, then it's it's pretty much game over. It's over, man. It, like, imagine if you were just studying genes, right, involved in making, say, Drosophila really, really big, right, using gene drive. And let's say you leave a window open because, you know, it's really hot outside. You know, who can blame you, right? No. Um, however, one fly leaves, and the next thing you know, we're living in a Drosophila apocalypse. I mean, it wouldn't be that bad, right? Just like it, instead instead of cars, you just ride on Drosophila to work. No, I think it's kind of kind of gross. Is it really though? Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. We can also think about clinical implications. So we're going to talk about muscular dystrophy, which is uh, a, a disease that involves you know progressive weakness with age and a loss of muscle mass. Yeah. And it's a common hereditary muscular disease that um, actually puts children in wheelchairs before their age of twelve. Um, and it's caused by defective or absence of proteins uh, such as dystrophin mm -hmm. needed for muscle formation. Uh, now, research in mouse models have shown that utilizing CRISPR to replace the disease gene has improved the disease state. So that's quite promising, but again, it's not enough ground to license the use in humans. A lot more research needs to go into it. Okay. Now, in reference, in reference to muscular dystrophy and using CRISPR-Cas9 to cure the disease state, there's also something cool that I'd like to mention, and that's and it's that using this technology, CRISPR-Cas9, although we've been talking about it in the context of changing a sequence in, in an organism, you don't always need to use CRISPR for that purpose. In fact, scientists have gotten really creative with how they even make use of CRISPR-Cas9. So think of this. You have a mutant Cas9, so Cas9 that's different from wild type, which is unable to cut DNA, right? So it can still be guided to a specific sequence by the CRISPR RNA, but rather it cannot cut it. Additionally, think of this Cas9 as being chimeric, which means that it's fused to another protein. And for instance, think of this other protein as being involved in transcriptional regulation. Right, it can be an activator, it can be a repressor. Yeah, so now you have a Cas9 bound to an activator that can be targeted to some sequence. Now, how can this be useful? We're not changing any sequence. True, but let's think of a certain patient that has muscular dystrophy, but the mutation isn't in the dystrophin gene itself, but rather it's in some regulatory sequence, like a promoter or an enhancer things of that sort. 
And these regulatory sequences are needed to express the protein in proper amounts. Hence, when they're mutated, you don't get enough of this protein and your muscles don't develop properly. So perhaps therapy can therefore include targeting this inactive chimeric, again, this inactive Cas9 that can't cut DNA and is fused to a transcriptional activator in this case, binds to, is targeted to a mutant promoter because the endogenous transcriptional activator cannot recognize this mutated promoter, but then this Cas9 can, and then all of a sudden you have this transcriptional activator that can now promote the expression of dystrophin. So now that we've covered the implications of gene editing, let's talk about the future. Dun, dun, dun. So actually, before we do that, um, I want to draw a quick uh, parallel to an incident that occurred in October 1999. Um, so there's this guy by the name of Jesse Gelsinger, who is a 17-year-old who volunteered to be part of a clinical trial for gene therapy. One of the first. One of the first, yeah. So. Jesse suffered from a genetic disease called ornithine transcarbamylase deficiency, so also known as OTC deficiency, which essentially prevents his body from breaking down ammonia, which is a byproduct of protein and kind of the, the buildup of ammonia could be lethal. So he has to be restricted to a low protein diet since birth. Um, so he volunteered to be part of this clinical trial where the scientists would, get, would deliver a normal copy of the OTC gene um, into his liver via injection. So the vector used for delivery was an adenovirus, which is a modified version of the virus that causes you to get a cold, right? So you, so you do get symptoms, but nothing, you know, nothing crazy, right? However, the infection of the adenovirus actually triggered a fatal reaction in Jesse, and he actually passed away as a result. Um, so he was the first person who was publicly identified to have died in a clinical trial, trial for gene therapy. Um, and it turns out that the vector that was you know, that was used, the adenovirus, was previously thought to be safe, um, but it actually caused past test subjects to become sick, which is a huge uh, failure in informed consent, right? major oversight. Um, and this all goes to show how dangerous testing on human genes can be. And after the incident, uh, there was huge shock, and many um, articles and journals were published. Um, actually, um, well, the Washington Post made an interesting report uh, where they said that the death um, is the latest in a series of setbacks for a promising approach that has so far failed to deliver its first cure and that has been criticized as moving too quickly from the laboratory bench to the bedside, which kind of goes to show how we kind of have to weigh the risks before we actually apply them in humans for clinical trials, right? Yeah. And this is one of this would be one of the uh, first of many articles about Jesse's death and the ensuing crisis it set off. Um, so this just kind of wanted to draw the parallel between germline editing now and Jesse's case. So kind of showing how we do have to be careful with when we tinker with human genetics. Yeah. So having said that, it's only appropriate to talk about why nature called for scientists to pause any clinical applications of germline editing. Well, one rationale is that knowledge regarding the effects of gene editing are lacking given the immense complexity of the human genome. So, for instance, like we talked about in the previous episode, what was once known as junk DNA is beginning to be ascribed essential functions. So we talked about non-coding regions. So given time, projects such as ENCODE, which is essentially an online encyclopedia about functional elements in our genome, so scientists can do their experiments and then upload onto this encyclopedia their findings. So this encyclopedia can become more complete and can expand our understanding of the human genome particularly how they relate to human disease. 
Furthermore, something else not really understood is that genome complexity also lies in pleiotropy. Well, that statement is understood, but the effects of one gene, right, are not really understood. So what do I mean by pleiotropy? So pleiotropy essentially states that one gene affects two or more phenotypes. So that is like a phenotype is just essentially an, an observable characteristic or trait. Yeah. And then one example of this that nature themselves nature themselves give in their moratorium uh, call is that there's a common variant of a gene called SLC39A8, which decreases the risk of developing Parkinson's disease and hypertension, but actually increases the risk of schizophrenia. So if someone wanted to knock out this gene, they sure you'd be decreasing the chance for Parkinson's, but you'd be increasing for schizophrenia. So you just need to give them time to perform this research and understand pleiotropic genes and genomic complexity in general. And then when we're comfortable, right, when we have enough evidence, then maybe we can make modifications that are beneficial and not lethal. We also have to be careful where we draw the line between what's necessary and what's luxury for gene editing. For example, does it benefit health or does it benefit some other thing like intelligence or is it purely cosmetic? You know, where do we draw the line? You know, um, interesting uh, thing to talk about would be you know those stores you know called where you build a teddy bear you know build a bear workshop can you imagine having like a build a baby workshop that would just be dystopian right. when i think of it <laughs> yeah so we kind of need the help the the contribution of everyone right we need politicians lawmakers scientists to come together and kind of create you know guidelines for germline gene editing and it's also why the public is important too right we need we all need to be informed so that we have say in the matter as well. Yeah, because we need to make sure that it's proper uses. Uh, we use it properly. Also, we also need to consider the cost of gene editing. Who can afford it, right? Are we going to have class distinctions? Is it going to be like certain medications like Daraprim, which some of you may know as the drug that was increased in price from 13 to $750 by Martin Shkreli, and it was used to treat uh, AIDS and prevent infection. So you, you remember the outbreak, a lot of people do, that it had when you just inflated the price of such an influential drug. So would gene editing, can only, would it only be accessible by the wealthy or will it be made available to all people? So finally, we also have to consider the difference between somatic and germline. So somatic refers to body cells, like skin cells, brain cells, etc. Um, so genetic changes in these cells are not heritable. Right? You can't pass them down to your children because their genetic material isn't passed down to future generations. Now germline is you know, encompassing of sperm and egg. Now changes in these would be passed down. Hence, why it is important to understand potential risks of making a certain edit in the genome. Hey Jun, have you ever watched The 100? Yes, season one only. So. So you haven't gone to later seasons. Nope. Okay. I have not. So this is sort of a spoiler. Okay. It, great. It's not really a spoiler because okay. I was thinking about this the other day. Okay. I'm like, would it be a spoiler if I said this? And it's not really, but for the viewers, I mean, for the listeners, if you want to close your ears and just not listen, put your volumes down. It's yeah. fine. Fast forward to my part, the yeah. important one. E sure. But <laughs> it, it's not that much of a spoiler. But again, you do you, and then yeah. All right. So context for the listeners that are currently hearing this. Earth in the 100 was irradiated and it was considered not to be survivable. People were living in a spaceship and the people decided eventually to send kids down to see if they would survive because they eventually wanted to go back to Earth, um, but they needed a means of telling if the Earth was survivable. So let's just send a bunch of kids down, why not? Good idea. Yeah. I mean, I no, I wouldn't do that. 
I'm not <laughs> okay. No, no, I'm not. I didn't say that. So ultimately, it's a, it's a really good show. So what I'm about to say again, you you don't have to listen to it if you want to go watch the show. But again, I'm just gonna say it. So in the later seasons, we learned that someone actually performed gene editing to make people resistant to radiation. Because again, the Earth was irradiated, so let's make people resistant. And then the phenotype of this, again, the observable phenotype, was black blood. Right. So I, f- I found that pretty cool that even shows are putting their own spin on gene editing and what it can be used for. Although the implications of it being used to edit the blood seems a bit drastic because it's such a necessary part of our body. But yeah. nonetheless, if a nuclear crisis occurs and you see me with black blood, then you know what happens, right? Interesting, interesting. Well, let's talk about something else. Um, something that we all are acquainted with. Right. And it's not spoilers, apparently. No, no, no spoilers. So, superheroes, right? Exciting. So, personally, I've always been kind of a you know a Spider-Man kind of guy myself. You I, know? I prefer the Green Arrow or the Flash, but... Well, really okay. well, regardless of what superhero you like, there's a high chance that their backstory for acquiring their superpowers has some sort of convoluted scientific foundation. Ooh, fancy words. Yeah. For example, uh, the X-Men and characters in that universe are called mutants, which seems to me like a direct reference to genetics. Was it actually? Well, well, let me finish. Here, look. Okay, the lore actually describes the superheroes as groups of humans who gain their abilities by the activation of the X gene. So oh. There you go. So the word gene is literally in the lore. Okay. Right. So, okay, well, what if some of these backstories could actually be possible? Could we actually have superheroes? Well, let's just think hypothetically here. Um, so creating genes, right, synthetically creating genes has been done before in other organisms. So what if we were to synthetically create a so-called X gene and then insert it into our genome with the CRISPR-Cas system, right? For example, we could insert the gene that allows Wolverine to have accelerated healing powers or develop bone claws, though that seems kind of painful to it, me. It would, yeah. Now, something similar has already been done in other organisms, like in zebrafish, where uh, they made uh, zebrafish grow limbs instead of fins. Um, however, editing in the human genome with a synthetic gene could have more unforeseen consequences. And we don't really know how Wolverine's genes might interact with our genes. They might just completely obliterate our genes and just... Right. Yeah. Kill us. <laughs> yeah, they might disrupt our function of our pre-existing genes, right? We don't have a way of predicting it as of right now. Yeah. There are also many ethical issues associated with manipulating human genes. So, like, for example, in the context of superheroes, um, you have to make the edits to have the abilities before you're born, right? So that you're born with the superhuman abilities. Right. Which means that your parents would be the ones to decide if they want a baby, they can shoot <laughs> laser beams out of their eyes. Which is, you know, it's not only quite a commitment, but, you know, it's kind of messed up because the baby has no say in the decision. Like, like, can you imagine, like, your baby's born, and then, like, the moment it's born, it just shoots lasers out of its eyes, and then the entire hospital is just shot down? Yeah, that, yeah exactly, exactly. It, it, I think, yeah, it, it's pleiotropic. A lot of things can happen. And I think one of the super uh, powers that a lot of people kind of play, like, the idea they kind of play around with a lot is flight. So... Achieving flight is probably one of the more complex and difficult tasks for humans. So firstly, there are many, many genes that would be need to be inserted into the human genome because many genes are required to develop wings. Of course, there are these like master genes for wings that are actually present even in you know, other organisms like Drosophila. Yeah. However, there's also a lot of helper genes that are required to make those master genes function properly. Yeah. And- uh, I just want to add that developmental yeah. biology, which is the process by which plants and animals grow and develop, is very complicated as it is. 
right? Because we have a body plan, right? We have all these genes that are involved in developing where our arms are, where our legs are, where our heads are. So imagine having to insert even more genes, because it wouldn't just be one, as Julian said, that it, it, you would have to be developing wings. And, you know, what if, again, it interferes with our own body plan, and instead of getting wings, we get... I don't know, no arms all of a sudden. We'd be like walking around just with two feet. Right. So yeah, yeah so you need genes required for feathers, muscles. And you also have to, like Ali said, you have to modify our pre-existing genes, um, which is you know even more complicated. And the list goes on and on as to why achieving flights seems impossible. However, who's to say that it's impossible later down the line? Maybe. So like newer technology to complement the current gene editing technology could be discovered. However, this is probably looking way, way into the future. We're talking about like decades to centuries even yeah um however if we were to somehow be able to edit wings into humans it kind of brings the whole icarus analogy mm. myth to a whole new meaning but new i mean perspective right at the same time it still limits us in that we shouldn't fly too close to the sun or else we'll literally die as opposed to you know dying a metaphoric death well we'd like to thank you guys for listening and we hope you join us next time as we discuss our second genome. But before we let you go, I wanted to ask you guys a question. Your thoughts on the title of this episode, Build a Baby. Because as Julian said, we have a Build a Bear workshop, but you know, in, not in the sense of having a workshop, but what if you can go talk to a genetic counselor or you just go talk to your doctor and say, okay, I want my child to have these distinct characteristics. What aspects of human life do you think are not touchable? What should we not be messing with? And do you even think that we should be making this accessible to everyone? Should it be accessible to a few? And where do we draw the lines in what we edit? Again, thank you for listening and join us next time.